listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today, my guest is Brian Valentine. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for doing this. Hi, Jill. No, pleasure to be here. And you're currently the regional manager for training programs for Amazon and also the co-founder for Men for Inclusion, which we'll talk about. How this works is it would be great if you could start at the beginning and from where you're born. I think you were born in the UK, but I could be completely wrong. Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've been mistaken for an American or even a German. You know, you go to Mallorca, practice your Spanish, and everyone thinks I'm German and talks to But um, yeah, I was born in Newcastle, uh, Newcastle upon Tyne. I used apparently had an accent until I was about five, but then as a family we moved down to Birmingham, and I got a Birmingham accent. Um, and I guess a big, a big thing that happened in my life then was that my mother committed suicide when I was six. Not long after we'd moved to Birmingham, so that was that's been quite a big feature of you know, of my life or a big thing that happened then. My dad then, you know, remarried and we kind of merged with another family. So growing up in a, a multicultural family where everyone was, had different things going on for them. Um, that was also very formative in terms of, you know, inclusion and diversity and equality. Yeah, so we'll stop talking. Maybe you want to probe on a couple of things. I, well, I just want to stop there because I've known you for a long time. And we said that we would just have this conversation and immediately you say something that quite floors me. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> at six years old, you know, your mother committed suicide. So so I don't particularly want to probe, but I just want to acknowledge that, yeah, that must have been very difficult. Yeah, and I think it's something that, you know, we didn't really talk about afterwards. Where, you know, mental health was at the time was that you didn't really talk about things. You just yeah. kind of locked them away. And so it's, it's only been recently, maybe in the last 10 years, really kind of explored that and done trauma therapy and you know, advocated for mental health, um, even though it's very stigmatised and still continues to be. But yeah, that was, that was a big shock. Yes, I imagine. And these podcasts, these stories are really looking at how you became you. And, and these kind of things, I know that you're a strong advocate for mental health and, uh, and now I, I see why. So um, sorry for the interruption. You're in Birmingham. You've got a, a new family. <laughs> That's right. What, what happened then? And I guess with this family as well, like I said, it was, there was a, we weren't all white. You know, there's a mix of you know, ethnicities in the family. And my youngest brother was born with cerebral palsy. So we had, you know, my youngest brother was disabled. And so growing up, you know, from 10, thinking about accessibility, thinking about assistive devices. That was very important because when I, you know, when I started my career at Vodafone, working on quite a basic website at the time, I was really an advocate for accessibility. This was 20 years ago. They're making sure that everyone, whether they were, had visual or hearing impairments or motor impairments, could use, could use the internet. So that showed up quite quickly. And it's something I'm still involved with now at Amazon. Just, just a few months ago, being part of an accessibility awareness event doing a speech and things like that so while I'm there's the, there's the gender and there's the, the, the kind of racial inclusion I think accessibility and disability has always been something important to me and always and always kind of showed up mm. so what happened after that did you leave Birmingham then to go on for studies or something yeah I went um, I went back to Newcastle actually I went to uh, to Northumbria it's funny you were thinking about what 
university course to do and now my children are teenagers I don't know if they'll go to university or what they'll choose but for me um, I mean I did math physics and art at A level and I was no even looking at art college <laughs> I was like I loved oil painting and um, I was like in Birmingham there's the Bourneville Art College I don't think it's there anymore but I was looking at thinking of doing that and I had a big conversation with my parents about you're not going to get a job doing that though are you so it's very much uh, you know, my parents both, you know, maybe from working class backgrounds thinking, well, you've you got to get a job, you've got to earn money. How are you going to do that doing oil painting? So maybe I could go into advertising design. So I looked at advertising at Bournemouth and I looked at marketing at Northumbria, which included just like a year's industrial placement. So I worked at Heinz for a year. So I guess it's partly compromising between what I wanted to do, which was more creative and what my parents wanted, which was that I got a job and earn money. It's interesting now, I've nearly finished a second degree and it was Arts and Humanities with Open University. So I'm still managing to go back to what I planned to do in the first place. That was a key thing. Then, you know, deciding what I wanted versus what my parents wanted and then going, you know, going to Northumbria to, to do a, quite a vocational degree. And the thing is that now that we're parents, <laughs> I certainly can absolutely understand why we fear and, and we want them to be secure and we want them to get something that... Uh, that they can live on don't we so we're sort of the, the other side of a conversation now yeah that's true and I'm thinking about my 14 year old who missed the last month of school that like, fortunately didn't have to reset the year but uh, it has no interest in school then you kind of think well you know going, going to university isn't everything but at the same time they can't live with us forever <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and also um, don't want to spoil them either and make them feel entitled they can just sponge off their parents. So yeah, I think being a parent now, you do look at the other side. You want you want the best for your child. Um, and be a balance between what they want and you know what's going to be able to let them stand on their own two feet. So you ended up in Newcastle then. Uh, and what happened then? Yeah, so I got a you know, did my marketing degree. Um I did a placement at Heinz. I was working on baked bean pizzas, which is ironic because I hate baked beans. It's one food I don't like. Um, and Weight Watchers from Heinz desserts and doing packaging design and, you know, even flying. Like I was uh, 19, flying first class to Dundalk to our factory there or to Middlesbrough, sitting in first class lounges as a 19-year-old, <laughs> getting the taste for the kind of corporate life, getting like, you know, Mercedes uh, to go to the advertising agencies. It's quite... It's, yeah, I mean, it's nothing like that now, working at Vodafone and Amazon. It's much more frugal these days. Uh, finishing my degree, I got a job at Vodafone. I'd never owned a mobile phone before, but it seemed like it was the upcoming thing. Uh, yeah, that was, those really fun years. Hmm. And I'm noticing that there's big names that you've been associated with. Yeah, so I was at Vodafone uh, on the graduate scheme. It was interesting because there's there a team of four of us looking after the entire website. And I remember someone saying, well, what a waste of a brain, like, you know, working on the internet. Clearly at Amazon, we've got more than four people working on the internet. <laughs> um, so then, you know, I met my wife-to-be. Uh, she was a barrister in, in London. And I was commuting between Newbury and London, which was about you know, two and a half hours uh, on, on the train. And then Kate had the chance to go back to Luxembourg to be, you know, a lawyer at the European court. And I remember the conversation, I was just walking along the park on the way to work. I said, yeah, go for it. I'll just quit my job and follow you. So I didn't really think it through as much as maybe I could have done. So yeah, I, and I, I quit Vodafone in the UK and just got married and moved to Luxembourg. And this is in 2005. Um, and then spent five months looking for a job. So this is still quite uncommon that men follow <laughs> their wives, isn't it? 
It is, yeah. And I, and I guess I thought, well, you know, she might have breaks in her career and I think maybe we'll have children. So I'll start by taking a break in mine. You know, when I say I'm a trailing spouse in a kind of patriarchal culture, it's usually the woman who follows the man. But at the time, it was pretty unusual. Yeah, pretty unusual. So you said that was your first stint in Luxembourg. So you disappeared again, did you? Yeah, we, we planned to come to Luxembourg for two years. Um, then we had one child and another child. I got a job actually back with Vodafone for five years. Um, had three years in London. But life in London compared to Luxembourg was so stressful. With, you know, with two children, the daycare didn't open until eight. I wasn't getting to work like until after nine. I was always late. And I was looking at this photo of Plaskiome in the snow. And I said, why don't we move back to Luxembourg? It's really nice there. So I managed to get a job in procurement in, in Vodafone and moved us back again to Luxembourg. So she followed you this time? And this time she followed me. She was, she was able to get a job back at the European Court. Mm-hmm. I had a big fallout with my parents. They weren't happy with me moving away from the UK. I don't think we talked for about six months. Um, so so yeah, that was another factor going on as well, that, that kind of guilt as well, moving away. Did, did that conversation and guilt happen the first time you moved to Luxembourg or was it just the second time? I think it was more the second time. The first time, yeah, maybe, you know, in, in hindsight, I guess I did move quite abruptly and we could have thought about um, the impact on wider people. Having a young brother who's disabled, I think having the family nearby, just in case something happens, was always a concern. So the second time we moved back to Luxembourg, I was moving away and, you know, maybe it's going to be for longer, the kids going into like a whole school system, which is how it's turned out. Yeah, I, I share your guilt I think any of us who live away from our families have, have always got that at the back of our minds haven't we yeah. so mm. what year did you come back uh, 2012 2012 so what what happened then yeah so I was at Vodafone uh, for a year then you know met a parent of one of my kids friends and he was working at Amazon and I thought you know when I was previously in Luxembourg Amazon was 40 people and it was much smaller now it's you know two and a half thousand people and much bigger and it seemed like this amazing, it is an amazing place to work, but it seemed from the outside like an even better place to work. <laughs> um, so in 2013, I got a job at Amazon here in Luxembourg as a senior product manager. That was exciting. Immediately having to go to India and Seattle, first time I'd ever been to America. So uh, so yeah, a very different kind of work style to, to a European company, but that was the next step. The next step. So product manager. You seem to have moved away. I know when you talked about your school it was maths physics and art but then you go on a route that's marketing and product and I feel you've moved away from that yeah that's a good point I think you know wanting to go into art and then thinking about advertising then marketing then product and then you know going into commercial finance and procurement it's really going into business isn't it Mm. and very different from maybe creative arts I know obviously there's commercial arts but uh, and, and sure, there's, you know, with maths, maths is used a lot in marketing and product. Definitely Amazon maths is really important. In physics, you might say, well, that's some understanding of technology, but I uh, can't say that I've really applied much of the physics I've used <laughs> in my working life. Nor me. And even, I forgot to mention, you know, when I was early in my career at Vodafone, there was an opportunity to apply to do an MBA. Before I met my wife, I planned out my week and I thought, okay, I can make the time to study this. And I applied and they said, no, <laughs> we think you're too junior and your role's not strategic enough for this to be useful. I was like, oh, and I was like, well, I've planned all this time to study now. Maybe I can do something else instead. So that's my first experience with the Open University you know, 20 years ago, getting into humanities. It was a course called Words and Sounds, looking at literature, looking at music. Then got me into like introductions to the humanities and, you know, doing philosophy, now doing our English literature. 
uh, so now doing courses with Oxford University, Anglo-Saxon literature on Jane Austen. Um, so getting more into that creative side. So you know, still interested in, in art, looking at literature as another way of creating kind of images and emotions. I wonder if that's an age thing as well, this art, this sounds, words, because I know that um, Audible, I'm addicted to Audible, and now it's just given me Audible Plus and loads of classics that are for free and these famous people that are reading them, you know. So I'm sat listening to Dickens, and I have to confess, I only knew Dickens from the series or the films. I've been listening to Seamus Heaney's poems on, on Audible. Um, but with a, with a story, I start to fall asleep in the car if I <laughs> listen to kind of a relaxing voice. But uh, Audible is great. Language and literature were my worst subjects at GCSE. Like um, I got the lowest grade in them. And I think having some life experience does make you appreciate it more. I'm watching a Korean drama at the moment. And um, one thing I've realised is that people are people no matter where they are. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've digressed. We've <laughs> digressed. We actually met because um, I was in the people in leadership group of the British Chamber and members of that group said, oh, you need to meet Brian Ballantyne. We think he would be great <laughs> to come into that. So, so that's where I met you. Mm -hmm. You're still in Amazon, but now your role has changed quite fundamentally. I see that you're in training and programme. So what prompted that move? Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, going from product and marketing, I then I took a sabbatical and traveling around India and Malaysia with my family and then thought, you know, I'm kind of bored of marketing, really. And, you know, my job at the time was to get more and more companies to sell their product on Amazon. And after four years of doing that, I got to the point where I, just, I didn't care. I don't really care if, you know, one extra company sold their products on Amazon. There was already, I felt, enough. I think what I cared about was more diversity and equality. It's something I'd always volunteered in as a sideline, setting up the Women's Network at Amazon in Luxembourg, set up various groups at Amazon worldwide. Um, and I always you know, thought, well, maybe I need to work in that area. Everyone always told me, there's this diversity job, why don't you go for it? And I always thought, oh, no, that's my voluntary sideline. So I thought, well, let's try it out. So I, got, I had the chance to be the diversity lead for international technology at Amazon for a couple of years. And while that was, that was good, I, I realized that it's quite difficult to make changes from the sideline. Um, and I probably had more power as a manager um, to actually influence promotion of people, the hiring of people, making sure that was fair. And I think also I was getting a bit disillusioned. You know, I went to Women in Technology in Amsterdam and there was 2,000 women in an auditorium, maybe 20 men, all being told the value of women in technology. And they're all nodding. And I thought, well, of course, they already know it. And they were like, why aren't the men here? And it's like, well, it's women in technology. Of course, the men aren't here. Uh, unless they're kind of allies or interested. So I just thought this needs to get into the mainstream. You know, diversity can't just be something that's talked about. So, you know, women's conferences, it needs to be in the mainstream. So that's why I'd already volunteered as part of this um, software development conference at Amazon. And um, I was organizing a, you know, a track around career development. And I made sure there was you know, a good balance of doing workshops and doing panels more so than anyone else was doing. And it was in the mainstream. This wasn't a sideline diversity conference. This was the conference all the developers had to go to. 85% men had to kind of, you know, listen to women on the stage and see them as role models. So I thought, maybe this is an area I can explore. So this is the role I'm doing now. It's about training. But my side agenda is to make sure that there is a, an equality and a diversity of experts that we put in front of 10,000 new Amazon engineers every year that we, we put on the stage at conferences, uh, that there is an accessible, you know, learning experiences uh, that I manage quite a diverse team, predominantly women. Most of them are not native English speakers from different cultures. 
and you know promoted four of them hiring new people kind of role modeling to others so people say oh, aren't interested in diversity anymore because you're not working in a diversity role but i think i'm having more of an impact in the role i'm in now and kind of mainstream so yeah that's kind of how i got to where i am now i was thinking about this whole idea of influence and where how can you have influence and you gave some thought as to where could you have the most influence whilst following what what it was you really wanted to do um and for, for me it's great to have international women's day but as you say you call it women's day and of course only women show up usually so this moved you i guess let's move into you deciding to set up something that would support women, but it was by men. So talk me through that. Yeah, this was, this was interesting. And I guess the background is that, you know, at Amazon, I was being asked to do male allies talks. Now, I never thought of myself as a male ally. I don't think it's a, a great word for men. I don't think it's a great word for women. Women don't need rescuing or... Uh, and men don't need to be, you know, told they need to rescue women either. But still, I was being asked to do these talks like, what, now you're an ally for women. What are some tips that you've got for other men so they can do the same? So I was asked to go and do a talk in Madrid and then asked to do this talk in Virginia and then, you know, in Berlin. So I kind of, it was more mainly a lot of storytelling with a few tips I'd found useful. And I think women were challenging me saying, it's not enough that you're an ally. You need to get more men to be allies. And, you know, I've always wanted to listen to women's suggestions. I was like, okay, fine. I don't really embrace this whole male ally thing, but let's give it a try. So I set up a group on LinkedIn called Male Allies Network or MAN and just put it out there and invited all the men in my connections I thought could be interested. And then you know, nothing much happened, you know, as is as is the way with male ally groups. People just, they set it up and they want, maybe sometimes maybe want the badge of honor or, you know, generally might care, but don't really know what to do. And, you know, as with men, you know, as, as with other dads, we don't really know what, what to talk about. <laughs> women are maybe better at that um but still so I left the group and really thought nothing of it for a while then a guy called Gary Ford got in contact he was a former managing director at JP Morgan and he he and Stephen Kosh had a lot of success there running you know male allies network and and trained thousands of men at JP Morgan and he was like I've been posting in your group and no one's responding and I think there's a thing with LinkedIn groups where you don't get notified or whatever and I was like oh okay you know let's have a chat then and we talked about maybe you know working together on a on a male allies kind of initiative you know first of all we were thinking of call it male allies for gender equality or mage like you know a male wizard kind of thing but um when we started doing some events there uh, gary was already working with women on the wharf you know in, in london which is a women's network around the financial institutions and we started doing some events and then you know i said for our first event let's ask the question do we really need male allies network uh you know people who self-selected to join voted that we did um, and then we kind of broaden, we've got more people involved, we changed our name, let's, let's be men for inclusion, so not just this kind of male ally thing. And also thinking as well, we wanted to move away from being entertainment, getting people to put the money where their mouth was and, and you know, go into organisations, do workshops, something Gary had already been doing. Uh, so yeah, just change the way we think about you know, diversity. It's not just free TED Talks or free posts or events where everyone's welcome. It's something companies have to pay for and, and put the time in. And again, there's that, there's that guilt, like, you know, how can we as white men be taking money to improve diversity? But again, that's what people need to do. And, and we're trying to, you know, not necessarily role model that, but I'm seeing more more friends, women of you know, black women, setting up their own consultancies now charging for it. Because I think that's the problem with the diversity is it, it's basically extra overhead for, for, you know, for women and minorities to do while, you know, men just stand on the sidelines. So that's a little introduction for men for inclusion. Um, and, and 
yeah, we're just starting to experiment now. We, we know every three months we see if we're if we're making progress. There's various companies, you know, working with HSBC, working with other companies who maybe doing one-off workshops. We're just looking for a deeper engagement where companies are prepared to you know invest the time and the money. So yeah, it's still exploratory, but I think that's you know that's that's where we are with it. I've been interested in gender equality for a while, and one thing that always surprised me was how are we still in this mess? Because we're actually not a minority, are we? We're 50%. 51% uh, even. <laughs> the world's customers, I mean, who makes all the, the purchase decisions? 60 to 80% women are making the, you know, the biggest commercial force. So, yeah. Yeah, as you say, women aren't a minority. No, we're not. You also raised this issue about should we make money out of something that is for good, for, for the common good? And very often I've had to give myself a good talking to because coaching is similar. And I think to myself, yes, but there's lots of professions that, that are doing good. The medical profession and this, that, the other, and they're paid and expect to be paid. So mm-hmm. do you have profit or do you have values? Um, and maybe we could combine the two. Yeah, I think so. It's something I'm exploring with wide. I mean, here in Luxembourg, we have Women for Digital empowerment i've been on the, on the board of wide for seven years and it's always been a non-profit you know subsidized to a small extent by the government um but often taken for granted and i think you know even with wide we're looking at do we want to move to, to a commercial model um because i think it's about the most important thing is the impact because these groups are set up to make an impact and you know, if they're done pro bono if it's all for free it's all taken for granted if companies aren't putting money and time into it, then then they're really taking it seriously. So it's not just about making money. I mean, you know, not <laughs> um, not expecting to make money as much money from this startup, but you never know. And why not? It's work, it's effort, it's expertise. That's our starting position. But yeah, going to these you know, companies, they pay a lot for other things. Why don't they pay a lot for this? I think that's what they need to do if, if they really want to walk the talk, and not just you know get a, a badge for good behaviour. Summing up, then, as you've heard yourself talk, is there any key moments or anything that you think that was a real learning point for me that's a good question i've just listened on audible to uh kazuo shiguro's remains of the day you know when the the butler looks back on his life and realizes he's been working for a nazi sympathizer and you know he missed out on the love of his life so it's not as bad as that (laughs) it's not as bleak (laughs) as as that what stands out as you said, maybe have I got away from what I set out to do? You know, I started out maybe being creative and have I lost sight of that? And I think my career has been all over the place. And, you know, but I think life is all over the place. And jumping to Luxembourg, changing from marketing to finance, back to marketing, to, you know, to procurement, to now to training. But as you said, like, just like with life, a lot of literature, there's a lot of similarities in people. And I think in, in jobs, there's a lot of similarity if you can work with people and work and work with you know projects and you can usually get things done and it's interesting the way we think about our lives as well uh, I think we know that we're focusing on the career for these big names like Heinz and Vodafone and Amazon which has you know look good on a on a CV but why is that more important than books that we're reading or hobbies that we're doing or, or voluntary work and I really you know like the idea of this kind of portfolio career including like education and, and lifelong learning that's why, you know, on LinkedIn, I put co-founder of Men for Inclusion, because that's what's interesting. And, um, oh, yeah, by the way, I work for one of the most successful companies in the world as an afterthought. So there's a kind of tongue-in-cheek there, but I don't, you know, don't need to define myself because I work for Amazon. You know, maybe there's, there's things in my life I've, I've made quick decisions on. Maybe I could have 
reflected more. And I think I've done a lot of work to kind of process trauma and process guilt as well. Um, and I, mean, I don't feel guilty anymore. I feel like we have to live our lives. And, you know, I wish I'd had some of that, you know, counselling and support, you know, at a younger age. But, you know, we, we learn life's lessons and, you know, I am where I am. And, yeah, I hopefully still got some, some years ahead to keep doing other things and, uh, and keep exploring what I'm passionate about. Mm, because passion really comes out when, when I listen to you. So um, and you talked about portfolio of work, which I think is the way we're going. No longer can we rely on uh, a job for life or just one thing. And I, I like this idea of doing all different things. You've also shown a tendency to live like, why not? I've heard a lot of, oh, that sounds interesting, why not? And just moved, um, which I suppose shows the creative, spontaneous side of things. I also heard where you start isn't where you end up. I saw a lot of, on Twitter recently about A-level resorts, you know, and I just wanted to say to people how little... <laughs> that they're not so important the older you get, you know? It's, it's what did you do last week? I actually yeah. like the word ally. Okay. I think ally is not about rescuer. I've just been to Normandy. Yeah, I was thinking about the, the, the military allies as well. Yeah, I, and I think in this world we all need allies. So I love what you do, this men for inclusion, and the fact that it's unfolding. It's exciting. Yes, it's exciting. And it's been a fascinating, uh, quick run through your <laughs> life. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank I've you so it. much. Thanks, Jill. Where can they find Men for Inclusion? Have you got a website? Yeah, we have. Uh, maybe the easiest is, is to go via LinkedIn. Going through LinkedIn, you can find me and there's a link there to the group. Okay, that's lovely. So enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Jill. Yeah, I never know how to close this off. <laughs> maybe, do a little maybe, song. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we could yeah, do a little song and dance.